Hi, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where I tell Yaram that I'm too busy to read the paper of the week and then call him and make him wait on the call for 20 minutes while <laughs> I try to buy a train ticket. <laughs> I don't know. I managed it, but I had to pay in Australian dollars with my PayPal account. <laughs> because it wouldn't take any of like the UK trains apparently don't take UK bank cards or something <laughs> maybe the British pound is in such a dire state that they have to get some like Australian dollars in and they realize that yeah. you could provide some hard currency and therefore they I've just my my one wish is to be a gazillionaire you know, Jeff Bezos rich just so I can buy all the f- trains and drive them into the sea. I already swore. Um, so I can buy all of the lovely, the lovely choo-choo trains and drive them into the lovely, lovely sea. <laughs> it's so, it's so hard to move around this country by train. I don't understand. I can fly to Berlin return for 20 pounds. And I know that's too cheap. I know it shouldn't be that cheap. It's like when a whole chicken costs a dollar, like that doesn't make sense. But it then cost me 50 pounds to go one way to Plymouth, which is not that far away. And it takes longer and costs like five times more to go to Plymouth compared to going from London to Berlin. (laughs) Why? Because clever investment in infrastructure that happened from the 80s to 90s. Um, Shut up, you smug German bastard with your fancy trains. (laughs) It's also the thing, like, I'm I'm used to train traveling in Germany... They're so much better than here. I mean, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I was looking at the distance. I'm like, this is, this is not that far. This is like, I used to go to work that far every day in, in Germany. Like, this is not, why is it so hard? But our trains are also <laughs> quite expensive compared to all other modes of transportation because the train system gets the least amount of subsidies. And therefore, like, you can ride on like a, a shoddy weird bus for like five, five euros. Or you can, I think now they want to change something about the, like, with, uh, what like in country flights <laughs> like they will be more expensive but I have no idea like if they actually I mean it. they should be they should actually be expensive but like I also looked at the option to take a shoddy bus shoddy buses also cost almost the same amount as shoddy trains and it takes like four hours longer I looked at like hitchhiking apps which don't panic mom it's, it's kind of safe semi-safe <laughs> um, those seem to just like not be a thing here like there's literally they do not want you to leave the city that you're born in unless you like first learn to drive that's the them's the rules kids oh <laughs> uh, yeah but um and i told a british person I was like why is it so expensive and i'm just like yeah yeah that's true <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> you're not really answering my problem and I'm like, yeah it, it is quite expensive not not everything can be perfect in britain i mean it's usually a country <laughs> of milk and honey and no problems whatsoever but there's like this one tiny little problem that's the train system milk honey and mushy peas <laughs> we've got it all here kids every single thing that's not a beautiful image no even though i like mushy peas like i i like not enjoy with milk eating and honey. them but seeing them like flowing next to milk and honey it's not a, not a good sight i would say um, yeah, I think, so I actually, today I actually got the letter from the, the driving school to, mm. to get my license, but it's basically the letter saying, because you're a filthy foreigner, we need like 500 more points of ID than if you were like a nice, a nice local, <laughs> um, still, still easier than learning to drive in German because the, the thought of like being screamed at by a German instructor while not understanding the German properly and panicking about that while also panicking about being on a road with 
German drivers who can actually drive properly and me just like, you know, I can imagine like an Australian starts driving in Germany and the whole driving, like the perfect driving of Germany just like collapses immediately because like <laughs> chaos has entered the system. Um, but yeah, that's now going to be like driving. a five step or, you know, it, it's going to be a process. I even, you can get your driver's license on like a website and when they, they ask you these questions and it's really like, it's like nice government website, very well done very modern and then it asks you at one point are you a uk citizen and when you say no it's like i'm sorry we have to redirect you and it redirects you to like a website from the 1990s which has got like tiny font and doesn't fit for a mobile app and just like it's like we're sorry and then like you go through that questionnaire and they're like we're sorry we're going to need to redirect you to mail and then they post something to your house and you have to like fill forms and sign documents and like stamp photos and stuff like that so it's a whole process uh yeah i mean berlin is known for the perfect driving that we have happening here all the time um but i was on the road twice already and um it was it was scary at first but then it got better very quickly but in the beginning um just like turning on the engine and then starting to roll and then starting to roll down the street and hitting the gas pedal and suddenly the car jumps forward and just like, oh my god, this is this is this is much too fast. It's like twenty kilometers per hour. Just like, how can I ever control such a hellish device? Um, and then later, like it was, it was fine. But um, I was surprised because I, I went in there like very cocky. I was like very much, how hard can it be? Like it's just a car. You just like this person who's like, you know what? I'm not an anxious person. I'm I'm a very calm person. And then you realize that you just haven't been doing anything in your life that is remotely hard to make you anxious. And you're like, I I am gonna crumble under pressure. Like this is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not that bad, fortunately. But um, yeah, I I thought like. I'm like a very sort of aware passenger when I'm riding. So I like, I, I register what's happening on the street and I was like, so yeah, I just have to control the car now. But then I realized like both hands, both feet <laughs> plus like 180 or more than 180 degrees of vision that you have to like stay alert to uh, plus mirrors. It's I'm just like, Oh, this is a lot of input for my tiny little brain. Um, <laughs> You're like the revelation is that like, just sitting and watching the scenery is a bit easier than actually controlling everything that's happening in this thing that's moving at like a hundred kilometers an hour while I mean, also watching the scenery. I, <laughs> I ride a bike that's that's quite fast, so I was like, okay, I, I know at like the most speeds that you go in the city, I can. Just in fairness, we should mention that you on. have you have an electrical bike. It's not just like you pedal really fast; like you actually yeah. have an, an electric bike. I have right? a, yeah, I have an electrical bike that I pedal very fast on. Um, and I thought like, oh yeah, I, I I like I know how to ride in traffic. I also like Berlin traffic, but then like a bicycle is just like an order of magnitude less complex to ride than a car. Um because it yeah, you don't have to, to switch gears like that and you don't have like a, a clutch. I think the clutch is what's annoying me. Um but it, um, But you're fine. not doing stick, right? You're doing automatic. No, no, I'm doing stick. Like because if you only learn on automatic, you're only allowed to drive automatic. And the car that we have is a I stick. But you told me last week you were doing automatic. No, I'm doing Why stick. Why did I think that? Okay. Because you don't listen to me, Tegan. That's the problem with the two of us. You never listen. <laughs> the problem with the two of us is I never listen to you or we don't listen to it's just it's just that I don't listen to you. <laughs> uh anyway, so what I <laughs> I tried cool. to quickly segue away, but um uh yeah it's it's related i'm i'm obsessed with first aid now um 
because because of your panic about driving and and hurting yourself is that <laughs> well, yeah, that's I healthy. Mean, we have a mandatory first aid class that we have to attend, um, and it's good. I, I think as it should part be. of learning to drive. Yeah, like because if you run into someone you should be able to help them again, then it's fine. I mean, having, like, knowing how to apply a sticky bandage is not that helpful if you've driven over them with your car, let's be honest. Like, I mean, I realistically, mean, we, learning to dial 112 is probably the most helpful thing you can teach in that class. Yeah, apart from, like, like um, I don't know what's in English, when you, like, breathe into a person's mouth, like, mouth-to-mouth, plus, like, a massage of the heart thing. Um, so that, like, I mean... It would be nice if you just would put water on humans like you do in plants to make them survive, but you have to like press them and blow into their nose to keep them alive. Disgusting. Yeah. So for me, I associate that with swimming because, you know, in Australia, you learn to swim in school. And if you go high enough in the swimming classes, there's eventually like a a first aid class Mm -hmm. there involved. So like first aid, like couples with swimming in Australia and obviously with driving in Germany. Yeah, I mean, we don't swim in shark-infested high waters. Like, even our seashores are fairly tame. If a shark has just bitten somebody's, like, leg off, giving them a little bit of mouth-to-mouth is also not that helpful. No, then you do, like, a proper, like, pressurized bandage thing on, so... Yeah. Although, like, it does it does seem to make a bit more sense, you know, they, if they've drowned and they've got water in their lung, that seems like the breathing could be more helpful than if you've run over them, the yeah. breathing, like... Yeah, it seems to be more. Yeah, and we learn how to, like, to be. take somebody out of their car if they're unconscious and uh, stuff like that. So um, seriously, yeah, like I know now how to like if somebody like had a crash with my involvement or not. I mean, like the idea is also that somebody runs into like the side of the street and you pass by, then you have to stop and help them, and then until the the paramedics arrive. Um, otherwise, you're also being held accountable for that. For not Do doing this. Do you play these scenarios like in the swimming lessons? We used to like, you know, somebody gets to pretend to be like uh, unconscious in water, and then the other person has to rescue them. And then, like, <laughs> when they rescue them, so there's this thing in rescuing somebody in water where often they then like grab you because they're panicking. And they try and like hold on to you and they pull you under. So what you get taught in swimming is that if they grab you, you have to kick them in the face and like kick backwards and swim away from them because if not, you'll both drown. So like, <laughs> this is part of our swimming lessons. It's like am I not surprised how to kick that someone this is the really. Only- <laughs> <laughs> the only thing you remember from all of that is like, oh yeah, somebody's well, in an emergency, the big- kick them in the face, right? That's what we, what we do in, in Australia. Like, I hope I don't I have mean, a car crash problem- near you. <laughs> The biggest problem is, like, I did the swimming lessons with my sister, so, like, usually with a stranger, a bit more gentle, but my sister and I were just, like, full-on, like, going for it <laughs> and, like, kicking and splashing. <laughs> like, get out of here, get out of here. Yeah, that's the thing about Fun times. The, the, the role play of the whole thing in in the in the class when you do it for the driver's license. Like, you're in a room together with, I think, 15 or 20 18-year-olds that are mm. all super shy and awkward about touching a stranger. Um <laughs> I mean, it's also not my favorite thing to do to put somebody like, like in a stable side position. <laughs> you're but, also like a 30-year-old man who's now like the one who's really comfortable with touching the 17-year-olds, which is also like a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> yes. obviously. Like, that's weird. I offered assistance to all of them. I was like... Yeah. You're just like, it's just bodies. And they were like, "This is who is this old guy and why is he here? Like, please. Yeah. It's a weird situation. Yeah. But now... I did... When I was... Sorry. <laughs> when, when I was younger, I did really like... I liked the idea of like being a cat. Like when cats sleep and you just like go as a dead weight so like (laughs) i'm quite happy to just like dead weights like across the bonnet of your car and you have to like (laughs) see if you can (laughs) remove me from the situation 
I would know how to do that now. Um, you have to support the neck. The neck is like it's like a baby, right? Like, no, you don't care for no, the neck. But you, I could hit my head. No, not the way I would carry you. Like your your head would bump against my chest in the worst case, like against like your your chest or my chest. Like I would come, like. The thing is, you go from behind and just like go under their arms, and then you hold their arms, and then you just pull them like this. And if you do it alone, you sort of drag them, and their feet are dragging on the ground. If you have somebody else they're taking their feet, and then you have like a limp body that you carry around. Um, so okay, it's very so what simple. if instead of like a person on the windshield, it was a kangaroo? How would you change the the plan? I mean, a kangaroo, this is important, I, Yoram. You will be tested on this. I will just drag it by the, its feet, I guess. Um, Wrong no, answer. The kangaroo has gone right through your windshield. <laughs> I mean, that's also what we learn. Like, if you run into any deer or boars or anything, you just you, you can break, but you can't steer because if you steer, you go into like oncoming traffic and then you die. And if you just crash into the animal, then your car might be totaled, but you will survive. So, um, like straight Horrifying. on, um, and then it's it's all good. Wow, that was. Um plants <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's that's where we study plants um yeah i don't yeah. even know what to say i do want to mention that i i was late today because i was just at a talk um by robin wall kimmerer who is a an oh. author and a plant enthusiast who we've talked about a bit on the podcast before um and we've definitely talked about her on our other podcast which is the plant book club because we read her book breeding sweetgrass a, yeah. a few months ago now maybe like almost a year ago and, and I think it was our favorite of all the books, right? I think so. Pretty yeah, much. it's it's like the other day we had somebody um, around and we were talking about books and they they also had a book club, but like like a more general book club um, and like not recorded, but like how you usually do a book club, you just like meet with a couple of friends and talk about books. Um, I mean, it's how you do a book club when you're publicly. not a narcissist who has to hear yeah. your voice, but yeah, that's <laughs> why so you don't exactly. want to be, you don't think that all the words you say are valuable little pearls <laughs> of wisdom that the world is clutching at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but then we talked about like the the book club and the books that we've read and um like i went through the library and, and looked at them and was like yeah this one is interesting this is nice and we're like yeah can can i have this can i read this and like nah this is not good <laughs> don't, take <laughs> don't, do that. don't take this don't take this but i but, but that was not what you said about braiding sweet grass exactly that's the like, one book that i gave book. away that, that's a book where i literally said like take this this is good have have fun reading it because it's really good but what was the talk it's about also, yeah it's also the one that i've given to a friend um and i kind of want it back because it's my favorite of the ones we've read like i i gave yeah. her my copy and it's like annotated and has all the um the tabs and stuff from doing the book club and i was like i kind of, I kind of want that again <laughs> um she was she was talking about her book gathering moss which is actually an older book um i think it's published you know in early 2000s or around them yeah 2003 but it's just been re-released so she was sort of talking about the world of mosses um she's also been on the ologies podcast talking about mm -hmm. bryology which is the study of mosses um and just a really nice point of view um she comes at it from a little bit more of a connection with nature point of view. So she's talking a lot about really getting down to the mosses level and looking at them and envisaging them as little tiny forests, which are filled with different organisms. And yeah, it, it was quite a nice talk um, discussing not just moss, but also how we can have relationships with nature to some degree. And there was one interesting question that was brought up by the moderator, which is the fact that not many mosses have common names. Like they're not so... We, we sort of have this tendency to look at a moss and be like, oh, that's moss. 
because we don't really get close enough to it. We don't usually have a magnifying glass with us, so we just sort of see them as all moss because they're a bit too small for us to observe properly. And Robin Wall Kimmer is really about, she has this little hand magnifying glass, and I think it came off up on the Ologies podcast and also in the book. Um, and she's mentioned it multiple times. Like, I've heard her mention it multiple times or read about it. And she's like, yeah, this little small hand magnifying glass. She's had it for, you know, 20, 30 years. And she's like, you just got to get at their level and look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also discussion about the fact that if we don't, you know, having scientific names is, is great. That's, you know, the best thing as far as knowing which species is which and not mixing them up. But not having the common names can also not give us a connection to them as well. It doesn't make them as familiar. And also this tendency to just sort of see them as a thing of moss as opposed to as individual species, which are all important in their different way and make up for the biodiversity. So mm-hmm. I th- found that quite an interesting thought. Yeah. There. I wonder if we can make up common names if like if you find a moss that's growing in your garden and you look it up and it just has a letter name um mm. is it okay then to just start the culture of calling it something and then being like i mean this by, is the- by definition it if it becomes common it's a common name right like if you can get if you yeah. think you have enough sway in the moss and or general public audience go for it like <laughs> Yeah, now I'm 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 tempted to to find a moss and have a. I mean, like personally, when I was in Germany, I made up lots of facts about Australian culture, um, and many facts about how English language works, and they were wildly widely accepted by an institute of 400 people. Um, and then when I went back to Australia, I was like, oh yeah, Germans they don't give flowers to each other; they give potatoes to each other instead, um, and made up lies about Germans. So it was like working both ways, and that was. You're just a liar. You're just just a liar, liar. (laughs) Teague. Nothing I say from now on will be taken seriously. Um, (laughs) The potato thing was because of Frederick the Great. um, There's a place at one of the palaces near where we worked where they they put potatoes on sort of, not his grave, but a plaque memorial because he brought potato to Germany. Yeah, and or popularized a, it, I guess. There's a story that he he brought potato and um, he sort of ordered everybody to eat the potatoes um, because it's like a good crop for the area, but like Brandenburg and and like the area has like terrible soil, so potatoes grow well, but many other things don't. But then the people were like, "Don't tell us what to do! Like we're not growing potatoes," and so it didn't really catch on. But then what he would do is he would grow like royal potatoes, and he would have guards patrolling the field. But like the guards were ordered to be very terrible guards, um, so they would go around. It would look like a very important field with because there's the guards around there, so it must be like very high valuable crops. So people would come in and steal the potatoes and grow them their own because it's the royal potatoes. And the guards were sort of pretending to chase them a little bit, but they the plan was always to have them take the potatoes because that's how you got them sort of spread in the in the population and that's that's the story that how friedrich 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 der große friedrich der große i don't even know freddy good freddy. good freddy great how freddy. freddy managed to convince like the the mistrusting population of potatoes that we love now so much i mean the thing is people have tried that now with gmos and instead of stealing they just burn the fields so Nice idea, Frederick. It doesn't really translate into a yeah. modern context, I think. Yeah, I think today when people see a, a guarded field, they think the, the field is dangerous and not that the um, it's protected from the environment. There are other things the environment is protected from the from the field. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it doesn't work today scary. anymore. Maybe. Although like, I heard a joke today that for, to get the vaccination rates up, we should just say like the vaccinations cost 20 bucks, but at Aldi there's a deal now for 10 euros and that's how you get the Germans to go in and get the vaccination. I mean, we did... <laughs> I mean, that's a bit different, but we did talk about how there was one place where they had like a sort of lottery system where mm -hmm. if you showed your vaccination card, you could go in the winning to, I don't know, win a set of steak knives. I think it was money, actually. But yeah. like, I I do think there is the need for a little bit of activation energy. And that's also understandable if people are on the fence, but like don't really care either way. Like, yeah, ideally, they would care enough about people dying. But like for, for younger people who are feeling like they're going to be less affected, maybe a little nudge is... Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Is that manipulative? Is that a bad way to w run a society? I mean, Is it always, kind of um, totalitarian? The big discussion about the whole nudging thing, right? The, like nudging as a theory of of interaction has the constant struggle between like is it ethical or not to nudge people um, i mean i'm australian and our government this, this is a true fact about australian our government has no qualms about like yeah. ethical I mean, nudging like they're just like nudging like they make like, they make a <laughs> Like tobacco will murder you and your great great grandchildren is like our message from our government for like you know it's it's fear terrifying all yeah. the horrors um yeah. we're very nanny state and I think growing up like that you're kind of like mm, I'm kind of okay with it to be honest like <laughs> oh dear I'm going to hell but you know what I'm, I mean I'm not okay with everything Australia does but that one I'm like fine. Yeah. Yeah, I also think like so many things are so deeply psychological, the way we interact with the world and do, the way we make our decisions is not based on facts, even though like we as scientists, we always want to think that decisions and actions are based on facts, because that's what we try to figure out facts about life. Um, but in reality, it's like it can come down to the packaging, how nice it looks, or like how well you treat it at the doctor's office, whether or not you trust them with a medical opinion, and all of these things. Uh, um, so, in the end, it comes down to sort of soft dis uh, dis uh, decision makers. Uh, I, I feel like we have, it's almost like we have a whole section on our podcast, a whole segment <laughs> about how people are flawed and biased yes uh speaking of segments let's now actually go into the real show and start rambling or stop rambling let's start we can start rambling <laughs> it's the paper of the week do you put those little um marks in that people can skip forward mm-hmm yeah, cool. chapter marks. Uh, you can always skip to the individual segments. Every time we open up a new topic, you can skip to that. So um, if ever you get bored by like, skip I to another boring how, segment. I don't know how you could get bored from from us, but in case you do, there is a skip forward function where you can very easily jump one chapter ahead. For example, to the paper of the week, which today I picked. Um, it's a paper called Mycorrhizal Symbiosis Primes the Accumulation of Anti-Herbivore Compounds and Enhances Herbivore Mortality in Tomato. A paper by Javier Rivero from Granada in Spain, published in the Journal of Experimental Botany in June 2021. Yeah. And, and Tegan, how did you I like the paper? <laughs> it's the favorite thing I've not read so far. I didn't read the paper. Sorry, guys. Um, but I can I can guess what it's about. Shall I guess yeah. what it's about? What is what is it All about? Right, so got mycorrhizal symbiosis. So that's plants making friendship with little mushrooms, fungi, um, usually in their roots. Um, it's usually mutually beneficial. That's the symbiosis. Primes the accumulation of anti-herbivore compounds and enhances herbivore mortality in tomato. So tomato is piling up with fungi in its root. 
And this is helping the tomato make little chemical compounds that are basically killing bugs of some kind, I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm guessing it's not like a rabbit beneath the soil, but it's like an (laughs) insect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's that's exactly right. Um, So we don't really have to talk anymore about this. Um, Surprise, surprise, the title is actually a summary of the contents. Um, Well, that's that's not always the case. Let's let's be honest. This is helpful. and Yeah. Yeah. But what and it's interesting as well. It's not just you know. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Quiet, this paper is talking about um, mycorrhiza. So these are fungi is that, that in- work with like interact with plants in the roots. And there's like several types, and this the types in this paper are called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi or AMF. Um, I'll try to not say the abbreviation all the time and instead like use the f- full name because I think it's easier to to follow along. But so these abuscular mycorrhizal fungi, they are called like this because they make abuscules, 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 I guess, abuscules, weird little structures where they essentially they grow into this root cells. Like they form, if you look at that in like a micrograph, like in a micro uh, microscopy image or just in a in a drawing. It looks like the there's inside the root cell another set of roots, and that's the cell from the fungus that sort of grows into um, the cell. And it sounds quite bad, and probably evolutionary that used to be very bad. I mean, they they uh, the hypothesis is that these were originally parasitic fungi that would sort of grow in a plant and then leach out nutrients and be. Um, uh, what's the opposite of beneficial? <laughs> like they were bad for the plants. Um, they were naughty fungi. Naughty fungi. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but now they have evolved um, together with the plants, and now they are symbionts. So they are working for their mutual benefit. And do you know like how how the interaction works? Like who trades what? Yeah, so I guess the plants give carbon, so usually like simple sugars. That's because plants can photosynthesize, so they can often make extra sugars, so they can hand those over to the fungi. And then I think the fungi can give a range of things. So it's usually like nutrients from the soil, like nitrogen, phosphorus, stuff that you know can be more limiting. And there the benefit is that the fungi has like a much wider surface area. So there's like a plant root, and this fungi is like impregnating it, but it's also spreading hugely throughout the the ecosystem like all on the forest floor um and then yeah i guess so like yeah nitrogen phosphorus and i think maybe also they could help with water as well potentially um just again because of this large surface area yeah and yeah that's kind of the exchange yeah and it's pretty much like a direct trade um if the plant gives more sugars then they get more nutrients from the fungus and vice versa so um, I think the plant has more control. Maybe I think like if if it runs out of carbon, it's just like nah, I'm not going to give you. But then I mean, it's yeah, reciproc- I'm, I'm trying to like yeah, but then search. it's also receiving right. less. Like the the fungus requires uh, yeah, the yeah. carbon to actually work to to take up all of the nutrients. I know, but it's more like who broke up with who, you know? Like who yeah. is the first one to be like, nah, I'm not giving you any other ones. All right, well, then I'm not giving you anything either. Like, it's- yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the plant can very much grow without the fungus, but the fungus requires the plant to survive. So, Although um, like like in very nutrient, like sparse soils, um, plants will really struggle to yeah. not have these interactions. I mean, they're just, they're just not going to do yeah. well. Yeah, but you can grow tomatoes in sterile um, soil, 
But if you try to grow the fungus in, on sterile medium without any plants around, then the fungus will suffer because it's it's very bad at taking up its own carbon if it's not directly getting like these hexose sugars from the plants. Um, then they will just do very badly and die. Uh, and therefore, that's like the the fungus gets the fuel from the plant and then uses that fuel to then also pump nutrients back into the plant. And so if the plant shuts off the supply, then the fungus stops working. But more in like a, as far as I understood it, passive way. It's not that the fungus then has like an active signaling network that's like, oh, look, we're not getting anything for our trade. We're keeping all our nutrients to ourselves. It's more like they can't take up any nutrients because they don't have but the fuel. The fungi can also sometimes go with like lots of different plant species as well, though, right? I mean, there's there's some that are more specialists and some that are more generalists, yeah. maybe. Although Again, pulling this from memory could be completely wrong and made up. Like <coughs> no, the potato I mean, thing. you're right. And these these mycorrhizal fungi, they're very diverse, and um, some of them are super specific to just one kind of plant, um, and others are very generalist and can work together with several plants and also several plants at the same time. Um, but these these arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, they have usually like smaller areas that they cover, so they stay sort of close to the plant. But then there is like the ecto micro ecto mycorrhizal fungi, EM fungi. Um, they are the ones that make like these huge networks, and you've probably also heard of the the thing that was called the wood white web somewhere in like mm. early two thousands was when it was like getting a lot of coverage, and since then studied extensively. So the Wood Wide Web is based on this idea that plants have basically their own internet where they're sending and receiving messages and also goods and the fungi is the internet that they... I mean, it's a bit of a mixed metaphor because the fungi is, is kind of a physical thing, but they're sending these these signals. And there's the idea that they're not only sending um, goods from the fungi to the trees, but also like from tree to other tree via the fungi. That's kind of the concept of this Wood Wide Web. And also signals, right? That like the one tree says stress, whatever, like insect mm -hmm. biting me. And then through the fungus, the stress signal is transmitted to the other trees that are connected. And then they all prepare for the for the insects before they even saw one landing on their own leaves. They all um, run away. <laughs> no way. <laughs> That's something that we're talking about later today, like how trees run away, um, but not in this paper. Um, so yeah, these these uh, abascular fungi so are these sort of support networks for the plants, and it's like very, uh, very easy to understand that like a plant does better when it has this additional network, like additional trading partner, so the plant doesn't have to take up all of the phosphorus and nitrate and all this, uh, the things itself. There's a fungus that does that for it. Um, but what's been hypothesized a lot is, uh, or like investigated is, does it have other effects on the plant? Like, does it increase the plant's fitness in other ways than just better nutrients? Um, uh, specifically, like dealing with stresses, like abiotic and bi uh, biotic stresses. Um, so things like he the heat, drought, um, being... Um, having too much water or even being attacked by other bacteria fungi insects or mammals or something so um do plants better when they have arbuscular micro uh, mycorrhizal fungi associated with their roots is the bigger question that was also like driving this paper and there's like so much uh, research being done on this um, because it's a very interesting topic like if that would work and if we could control and understand that you could imagine like how big the benefits would be for agriculture and all kinds of things if uh, instead of making the plants better, we sort of give them a little sidekick that helps them to mm -hmm. be better. 
Uh, and there is like this this broader idea of sort of fertilizing plant with beneficial um, like plant bacteria and stuff. So so helpers like like these fungi that you can add them to crops maybe and and help the crops yeah get things from the soil better. So it's it's an idea that's circulating, I think. Yeah, uh, and so in this paper they are looking specifically at the response of tomato plants to um, uh, to the presence of. Uh, of these micro a uh, vascular mycorrhizal fungi in the soil uh, when stressed and when not stressed and this paper is from a group that's very good with metabolomics so that's the the technique of measuring all of the metabolites in in a system so in this case in the plant and identifying them and then making sort of large scale conclusions based on that so metabolites is everything from like simple things like sugars and amino acids to like more complex like signals um some hormones and you know defense molecules things like that as well yeah i always remember this as um there's like all of the genomics that's like dna and you can also kind of count rna like transcriptomics you can count that into that so there's all the nucleic acids then there's all the stuff with proteins and then there's all the rest and all the rest to me is metabolomics and i mean there's some stuff in there that's not really metabolites like polymers from like the the cell wall that you wouldn't call a metabolite um but to me like i'm a protein biochemist so to me everything that comes after proteins is just like it's just metabolites it's just like all kinds of different yeah. things i guess it's, i'd be separating the lipids as well from the non-lipids but that's also yeah my bias because of the whole membrane thing yeah anyway anyway yeah as a protein biochemist, like lipids is just as good as any other metabolite. Um, okay, so this this group, basically the experiment then is they're stressing the tomato plants. I'm going to imagine that they're like scaring them because that's what I have in my mind. <laughs> they're like, boo. Uh, they're scaring the, the tomato plants and they're doing that with or without the fungi presence. And they're seeing how, what metabolites they make when mm -hmm. when the tomato plants are scared. Pretty okay, what are, how are they actually stressing them? What's the actual they're, stress? They're, they're, using, they're using some insects. They're using the caterpillars of some bug um, that are mm -hmm. chewing on the leaves. And it's very important because what they're looking at is the response to like a generalist chewing insect. Um, because there's like other insects, there's like sap-sucking insects, for example, that damage the plant in different ways than something that just like straight up eats the leaves. Okay, so that's actually because plants have different responses to different types of pests as well. That's yeah. why that's sort of important to mention. Yeah, and so they grow tomato plants in pods with the fungus and without the fungus, and then they put some caterpillars on there, and then they look how quickly the caterpillars die. Mm -hmm. And do you want to make a guess what happens when you put... Um, the caterpillars turn into beautiful butterflies. I think the caterpillars are <laughs> going to die fast. <laughs> Yay. I think um, more of them turn into beautiful butterflies when there's no fungi. And um, when there is the fungi, more of them turn upside down, wave their legs in the air, and then eventually stop waving those little legs. That's, yeah. yeah. Like that's what from, I'm imagining. From the plants, from the tomatoes that were grown with the fungus, none of the caterpillars made it to the next developmental stage. Like they, None of them pupated. Went to do pupated, a pupated. Pupate. Did they die or did they just like get developmentally many, kind of many arrested? Died. Okay, many died. And uh, um, yeah, I don't remember the, the exact percentages, but uh, I think after like two weeks, all of them were dead. Whereas mm -hmm. on the on the other tomato plants, uh, a, a significant ton amount. of butterflies. Yeah, I guess they're not so actually butterflies. It's like a, a bug of some yeah. moth. 
Uh, I should have looked up what exactly the animal is, um, but it's like a common pest for for tomatoes. But it has like a little green bug, and they would put like two bugs in a little clip-on cage onto one leaf, and then do that a couple of times until they have like uh, good numbers, and then see how well they do after. And then after so a week, many of them were already affected. So I, that's that's an interesting. Um, it's a nice positive result but i have a question and my my general thought like my logical thought would be if a plant has more access to resources if it's just generally healthier because it has more nitrogen and phosphate that the the fungi has helped it get of course it's better at fighting off an attack so i wonder did they do any other experiments where they compared like the tomato plants with and without the fungi but also with different access to nutrients so maybe like it has the fungi but there's no nutrients in the soil or it has not got the fungi and it's got like extra nutrients to make up for not you know or looking to see how well those nutrients are being assimilated into the plant and the growth levels like did they do anything like that because to me it also somehow makes logical sense that an overall healthier plant would be overall better at fighting off bugs I I completely agree and it's something that they mentioned but they didn't control for that specifically in terms of changing the nutrient composition in the pots um they sort of gave enough nutrients um like they could not from the from the growth level you could not distinguish the two plants like you would grow them side by side and you could not distinguish them like one it's not that the fungus inf uh, infected plant would grow quicker taller more bushy mm -hmm. more leaf area or anything like that they were indistinguishable which is one sign that they are um that they don't have an immediate benefit from just having better nutrients available um the other thing is that they compared them on a metabolomic level so they actually looked at all of the metabolites um and uh, they could see no difference when there is no caterpillars so in the unstressed state in a sort of the plant is just hanging around uh if you look at all of the metabolites in the cells, you didn't see a difference between the ones that had the fungus and then the ones that didn't have the fungus, which is also an indicator that there's no like systemic, like healthier state that suddenly the plant is just more vigorous and stronger. Um, because then you might see like some defense things already upregulated before, where because they're like, look, we have resources to spare, so we can build higher walls in their defense system, and that gives them then the advantage when the attack actually happens. They couldn't see any of that. This is the metabolite levels in the leaves of the plants, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because another control that they did is that they looked at the side where the caterpillars were chewing, so directly at the 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 part of the plant that was under attack. And then they also looked at other parts of the plant where there was no attack happening. And um, they did that again in like with the fungus and without the fungus. And that gives you an idea if like the systemic level increase like has something that's affected. And they didn't see that. They didn't see that. So sort of all of the plant is ha hanging around happily, but the part that's chewed on, there is like something happening. Um, and they, they found like a number of metabolites, like 200 that were changed. And then they looked deeper into them and, and analyzed them, grouped them together. And they found like four compounds um, that were particularly interesting. And then they started a feeding experiment on the actual bugs. So now they wanted to see like what is actually happening. What is poisoning the bugs? Because they, before that, you sort of had a black box system. You have a plant, there's the fungus and the bugs die. And now they want to see what kills the bugs. Sorry, I'm confused. I thought you just said there wasn't any metabolic differences. And now you're saying there was metabolic in the systemic, differences? In the, in, the, in the controls, like when there's no bugs eating them, 
then there's okay, no differences. So there was only differences once the bugs were chewing. Okay, yeah, sorry. and only at the location where the bugs are chewing. So not, okay. uh, not in the entire plant, only where the bugs are actually chewing. There you could mm. see a difference. And um, so they isolated these um, or like chemically synthesized these four compounds and did a feeding experiment. Um, and they did, did a level control there that I want to mention um, because they, they did an artificial diet, um, but that could... Uh, to, to so they gave the caterpillars just the different compounds together with other other nutrients that the caterpillars need and see what happens and on two of these four compounds the bugs di died immediately um, on one compound it was sort of a slower effect and one compound had no effect so what they did is that they gave them the artificial diet where they just gave them the compound and then they also took the compound and put it on the leaves and then had the bugs eat the leaves um, together with the compound and they compare that like is one of them deadlier or less deadly than the other um and i didn't really understand why they would do that until they mentioned um, it in the paper <laughs> because maybe the the compound itself is not deadly it just prevents the plant leaves from being like digested properly so it's sort of like an anti-digestive or it sort of inhibits uptake of nutrients from the leaves or is only poisonous when with another compound from the leaf. I would guess it's like um, anti-digestive. That seems like a kind of common sort of compound. It just makes you have a stomach ache if you eat it. So it means you're not getting nutrients from the food source. Yeah, that that could be it. But they also mentioned that it could be just a signaling molecule. It could not be like the immediate, like it's the thing that they see in their analysis, but it couldn't be not the poison. It could be the thing that triggers the poison. So, so they infiltrate. They they got the the compounds back into the leaves. Like they sort of infiltrated it into the leaves. They or said just that like they, they covered the leaves with it, and the the assumption is, I guess, that when they chew on the leaves, it sort of gets mixed and inside. then triggers mm -hmm. the triggers the signal. Um, but I found it quite clever to include that control to make sure that they are not trying to feed the signaling molecule to the bugs, and then the bugs don't die, and then like oh, so the compound is not important in the anti bug response. Did, did the bugs? Did the bugs not die when they just gave the molecule? What happened when no, they just they, gave they the molecule? No, they also died when they just gave they them the molecule. Um, okay. So they they could sort of show that it's really just a molecule and not something that has to come in from the leaves. Uh, and with that, that's already the, the end of the study. They could show that there is, um, when the tomatoes are infected with this fungus, they are more resilient against these bugs and they could also find the things that kill the bugs actually. Um, and they are specifically more um, present, these compounds, when the fungus is, pre uh, is, is there. And so it's not like something that comes from the fungus. It's just that the, pl pr uh, the plant is in a sort of primed state. They have an invader and it's a beneficial invader, but it's enough for this sort of baseline level of, of readiness um, to be able to very quickly churn out a lot of this defense compound and kill off the bugs uh and yeah that's that's pretty cool that this exists and then i wanted like can we now use this actually for agriculture and um i looked then on some other papers and what exists there and like you can commercially buy these um abascular mycorrhizal fungi as a sort of as pretty much um, soil that's infected with these fungi and you can sprinkle that on your field and then they will go to your plants there but there's very conflicting results about the benefits of that like very often it seems that it doesn't really have an immediate effect um, or a, a direct effect like in one study i found that they saw that um, 
the the weed that they were growing on the land with when after they added this commercially available product um the weed had more nutrients in it but they could show that it's not directly coming from the fungus but the fungus is changing the composition of the soil uh, microbiome so of the bacteria and other fungi that are there and they changed it fortunately in such a way that more phosphorus was available for the weed but it wasn't mm-hmm. directly the fungus going in there. So it's like a very complicated story. So you can't just say, okay, we just get this fungus, put it on our fields, and suddenly we have resistant crops that are great at, at um, taking up nutrients. Um, yeah. So, but there's a lot of the stuff is like from the last couple of years. So it's really actively being researched. So I guess um, we'll know more like in the future about the technical applicability of it. That's the mycorrhizal symbiosis primes the accumulation of anti-herbivore compounds and enhances herbivore mortality in tomato by Rivero from Granada in Spain, published in the Journal of Experimental Botany in June this year. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Um, I want to open with something that a friend said to me. It's an opinion piece that was published in the Sci- in Scientific American, and it just came out a few days ago, or maybe like 10 days ago. Um, and it, it links both to what Yoram's just been talking about now with this wood wide web, and also to the book that we recently did in our plant book club, which is The Hidden Life of Trees, which also was very invested in... Um, this idea of these networks between trees and that book had a very strong thought that the trees not only were um, communicating with each other but they were also helping each other out they were sort of very friendly and they were all trying to work together for the greater good with the bigger trees helping the smaller trees like a mother and a child and this was all very lovely it was in a very um, you know human like way it was to try and make us sort of have this familiarity with plants and, and see them as like us, as a, as a path towards conservation is the argument. And um, this is a, an opinion piece which is saying that this is not maybe a good idea. <laughs> we shouldn't be pretend. It, it's, it's a, the, the tagline is it's a romantic notion, but pretending they're like humans, they're being trees, could actually harm the cause of conservation. And it is just an opinion piece, so it's sort of um, some person's idea that is discussed, but they actually bring up The Hidden Life of Trees, which we read, as <laughs> well as um, the book by Susan Simard called Finding the Mother Tree, which we have to read at some point. And Simard is the one who came out with this wood wide web um, in the original, I think, science paper in the 90s. I think it's science and I think it's the 90s. It might be the noughties. Um and then also they, they talk about, you know, James Cameron's avatar and, and stuff like this. <laughs> but yeah, it's just sort of showing on the the other side. And I think I tend to agree with this opinion a bit more that it is nice as a thought exercise to think of these things, especially as a way to have more connection for people who struggle to see trees as living beings and see them more as a background. Um, but it's a little bit can be a little bit silly sometimes even misleading um this author says yeah over over emphasizing cooperation is misleading the forest floor is a forum of fierce competition um and it talks about how that actually you know survival of the individual is what's being favored there 
And they also talk about how we like to romanticize things in different ways depending on the plants involved. So they say, you know, in these books, we talk about a, a larger tree giving to a smaller tree of the same species, this mother to child relationship and helping it out. But she mentions here that if, if this mycorrhizal transfer of resources is happening from a native grass, a good guy, to an invasive weed, then this will be like seen as uh, parasitism. You'll be like, oh, that, that nasty invasive weed is taking away from the grass instead of like, oh, the beautiful, generous grass is giving to the, um, the parasite. So she was saying that sometimes these ways of thinking can also oversimplify a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it is, it is worth a read. I can understand why these anthropomorphic types of science are popular um, because they are relatable, uh, but I, I do struggle a little bit with them. And I thought, yeah, it's, it's sort of nice to think about the pros and cons. And her ultimate argument is that, yes, it's, it's good to have this relationship with plants, but we also need to learn to value plants for being plants instead of only valuing them for being like yep. humans. And I think that's true of everything, right? Like also for yep. animals, but you know, if what we value is similarity to ourself, that in itself is a problem. Yeah. Um, and for many, many things, we shouldn't just be like, oh, that person is the most like me and therefore they have higher value as a scientist or whatever. You know, this is always a bit problematic. I see that problem arise as a science communicator sometimes when you start to tell stories about, like, for me, it's often molecules and then you sort of humanize them and say like, so this guy wants to interact with this other protein and but there's something blocking that and you, you're putting all of that emotion in there and suddenly you're creating intent when so many processes in nature, they're not like intentionally bad or good. This is just doesn't mm-hmm. apply there. These are just randomly driven um, if processes that happen that sometimes are beneficial for an individual and therefore may be kept around when others are, are harmful and therefore trying to, to be avoided. But it's not that like the plant that grows up a tree and strangles it, that it does that out of bad intentions, that it's trying to harm the tree actively because it hates the trees. That is something that we like this ascribe to it when we observe a tree being strangled by another plant the plant itself just takes the tree as a a shortcut to the light and physics dictate that when the trees grow um they strangle they get strangled from the plant that's that's killing them i mean i personally disagree because my garden is currently being completely strangled by one of these creeping vines it's not not weed but it's, it's another one that has these white flowers um which are very pretty, but unfortunately it's just taken over everything in my garden. And I completely think it does have bad intentions. I think it wants <laughs> me to feel sad. I think it wants my garden to suffer. Um, it wants to strangle the life. It actually strangled the life out of my sunflower. It was trying to kill my sunflower. And then when I killed the the vine, it turned out that the sunflower had been held up by the vine that was climbed the sunflower and then leapt over to another branch and meanwhile like strangled the sunflower so it couldn't support its own weight and it needed to be hanging off this this creeping vine in order to like stand up the second i killed the vine it like flopped over on its face because it had been weakened to you know so i think that is a very naughty plant and i'm not happy with it and i would like it to go away um not okay Um, but yeah i i don't know i think i can understand there does need to be a certain amount of like science does need to be made accessible we also do it in our stories where we say you know 
we, we make things. We talked about, you know, plants smelling nematodes, which is not really accurate. They don't have noses. Um, it's molecular signals. But this is sort of this, this mm-hmm. thing of making it similar. And there's, there's a weird line where I can understand. For me, the right place on that line is where Robin Wall Kimmerer goes in her book. That's like just the right place. And anything further makes me uncomfortable. But I can understand that for other people, especially people who have a less um, scientific or at least plant scientific background, the line is more towards humans because there's a familiarity there that is yeah is nice yeah um, but but yeah I'm I'm excited to read that opinion piece because uh, I think like like so often like a good middle ground has to be found but I also feel uncomfortable when you start to humanize things like plants and say like look they are just like like people they feel pain and they want their offspring to do well and all of these things that oh yeah the pain i had no tolerance for i was like this yeah no (laughs) i i wrote another instance of the missing link and i'm not going to play the jingle because you didn't like it the last time and i didn't work on it since then um, but what the question was the missing that, link jingle. I don't even remember there being a missing link jingle. Uh, yeah, because you said it's no jingle, Tegan. It's the guy typing on the keyboard and being like, "Huh." Do it again. Do it again. <laughs> huh? The missing link. I think it's just it's just too. Um Everybody who's listening has just got dead air for 20 seconds, you know? It's yeah, just it's not fine. that easy to hear. Uh, <laughs> that's why I didn't want to play it, Tegan. Now you're, like, you're talking bad about every, me in front of my friends every, a second time. Like Every week I'm going to request it and then explain to you why it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just terrible. You understand? Like, it's not just, that it's like, bad, you're It's happening. just that I've come to expect more from you. But play, play it once more. Play it once more. Once more. Yeah, no, now that I hear it for the fourth time, like, yeah, it's really, it's really... <laughs> Maybe it's not you. Maybe I just didn't have enough glasses of wine before I, <laughs> I listened to your really <laughs> jingle. <laughs> anyway. Sorry. Tegan, <laughs> I want to know from you, what is the link between a tree researcher riding in the passenger mm-hmm. seat of a car and poking a hole in a can? One more time. What is the link between a tree researcher riding Somebody who a tree. Riding in the passenger seat of a car and poking a hole in a can? So literally the second you say riding in the passenger seat, I immediately have that I don't want no scrubs song in my head. Scrubs I can't get no love from me. And I can't hear anything else you say because that just starts like screaming in my head. Um okay, that wh- gives you a clue as to how old I am. So sorry, you're riding the passenger seat of the car, you're a tree researcher and you're poking a hole in a can. Yeah. What is the link between I'm all gonna of those? We need more yarn. <laughs> we need we need a little bit. Can you give me some more is it's it an alcoholic object. beverage? It's yeah, and uh, like you poke a hole in a beer can. You you say that as if you've given me more information than previously, but that's exactly <laughs> the same amount of information you gave me previously. I mean, now I know that the hole is being poked; it's just not spontaneously poking itself. So I guess that's a clue. No, it's like in a, in a beer can. You specifically do this with beer, and it has a name, um, and it's the it's the name of an object. That. I don't know if that makes me more or less cultured than you that I don't know what it is. I understand. Like, to be fair, you stab it's, it. it's like a US stabby, American stabby. tradition, so that's where the name comes from. Um, also, the, is it a- the riding in the passenger seat of a car has also a specific name that has... Shotgun! Yeah, 
Shotgun is the word that we're looking for. Um, I cannot connect any of the other two things to shotgun still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me let me explain it. Like, let's start with the non plant uh, stuff first so poking a, a hole in a can is uh, called shotgunning a beer where you like punch a hole in the can and i like <laughs> i actually researched it because i've never done this but the idea is you poke a hole in a, in a can a little bit splashes up but then you put your mouth on the can hold it upside like with not upside down upside up um and then you open the other end and then you have you created a tube that's open on both ends and then all of the beer flows into your mouth very quickly and that's lets you drink a whole can of beer in i don't know 10 seconds um and it gets you very cool. drunk apparently that's something that people like to do um it's not something that like i ever did as a student because we in germany we have glass bottles for our beer so we can't poke a <laughs> Like we don't put holes in our beverages. Like we just drink the beer, um, but also our beer has alcohol in it. Apart from like U.S. American beer, is um, it lighter in the U.S.? Huh? Is it lighter beer? Is it less alcohol? Yeah, I thought like, it just had less taste. Like the, the the standard Bud Light stuff and like the the big brands, they all have between like one to three percent of alcohol. And in Germany, like it mm. starts at five usually. Um, so, okay. but anyway, so that's that's shotgunning a beer. Then riding in the passenger seat of a car is called shotgun. Um, and I looked up where that actually comes from. And there's a little bit of a debate of, of that because like back when there were like um, couriers going in the Wild West with like a, a horse carriage, you would have the, the driver of the carriage and then you would have somebody protecting the driver with a, shot, with a shotgun sitting next to him. Um, and that's where that mm -hmm. apparently comes from. But the term riding shotgun wasn't used really in the time of the Wild West. The first time it was found written is in the beginning of the 20th century. And really popular, it only became like in the 50s of the 20th century. So when Wild West movies were, were very popular. And in the movies, they would use constantly the, the term of like, like yeah, um, we have to go west and I'm riding shotgun. And from that, it went into like the, the, the young people used to say that when riding their cars. And that's how we started using this now to call shotgun when we want to sit in the passenger seat um, of a car. So these this are the is all well and good, but the third thing was a tree scientist? Yes, there is a tree researcher, and um, they are called the shotgun scientist. They call themselves the shotgun scientist. And do you have an idea what a tree researcher could use a shotgun for? And it's not to harm people. I was imagining shooting squirrels out of trees, to be honest. Um, I mean, squirrels yeah, are not people. Yeah, I guess they're shooting... <laughs> <laughs> I guess they're, they're shooting... Um, like the the berries or like something from the top of the tree to like collect it more easily. Like maybe yeah. just like shooting so that like leaves fall. Or I, I'm imagining like some pods. In my head, it's like a date palm, and that like they're shooting and the dates fall off. No, it's an oak tree. It's a red oak tree that they're shooting. Okay. Um, and they're not shooting the oak nuts fruit of the acorns. oak tree. The acorns. They are shooting branches of the acorn uh, the tree, um, just because they want to take samples from high up in the tree and lower lower like they want to compare different stages of the canopy and it's complicated to climb up the tree in a safe way to cut the leaves sorry sorry is it more complicated than shooting directly above your head in a, in a sh safe way because <laughs> the, yes, I'm, I'm quoting but also are we going to shoot up in the air i'm quoting the researcher angelica patterson she says i can't climb trees building scaffolding is expensive and using a slingshot requires a lot of skill a shotgun is an efficient 
cheap and effective way to collect the high up leaves that have full exposure to the sun because that's what she's using them for she goes in a in a forest like um, a specific forest is uh, very rich in in red oaks aims at the top of the tree um, at the branches there and shoots off a branch it falls down she puts it in water brings it back to the lab that she has in the forest and then does photosynthetic measurements on the leaves that she she harvests this way and mm-hmm. It's not like she isn't constantly blasting everything with a shotgun just to take a sample. It's really just for the things that are really difficult to reach otherwise. Um, And she's Mm -hmm. doing that all to study how trees migrate. Um, She's a a PhD student, uh, 36 years old, and she's um, working on figuring out like how do trees migrate in response to the climate crisis and of rising temperatures? How do they usually migrate north? Um, Mm -hmm. to stay within their optimum temperature range and to do that she's like figuring out like photosynthetic capacity and like fitness and other traits of of different trees and has to go into the forest to to do the sampling and that's where she uses the shotgun and um, there's an action an an interesting um, article that i'm that i'm linking um, where in the Guardian, where it's explained what she's doing, and she also has a really cool website, the shotgunscientist.com, um, where she also explains like her work as a, being a science educator. Um, she's very involved in teaching people about like um, plant science, and um, there's like a video a day in the life of a plant scientist and and other things. So if you are interested, um, it's a good place to to learn more about like her research and and her work um, as a science educator so that's angelica patterson patterson um and that's in the university in the cornell university of ithaca ithaca in new york um and yeah but i don't know if if that's the forest where she's actually doing her shotgun research yeah so that's the link between tree research and like i had to pick two other things that involved the shotgun (laughs) amazing um, so a throwback to last week. Last week we were talking about um, the plant genus Tragopogon. So this was also called Salsify or Goat's Beard. Um, and I was kind of mocking the fact that the root is described as tasting like oysters. I find this like literally incredible. I I cannot believe it. I can't imagine a plant tasting like oysters. Oysters taste like the sea. This how. Um, but I was sort of faffing around today on Twitter um, and I found mention of a different plant which belongs to the borage family um, and it's called sea bluebells but it's also called oyster plant or oyster leaf and it is also supposed to taste like oysters and not only that the plant apparently gives off like an earthy mushroomy smell as well so it's Smelling like mushrooms and tasting like oysters. <laughs> okay, um, a very like. In fairness to this plant, it grows like on sandy beaches, so it grows kind of like on the edge of the ocean. It's in these really rough, like subarctic climates. It gets really cold. There's waves coming on. It's getting salt. It's getting shore winds. So, I do find that a lot more believable that than just like a random thing growing in like the the european countryside to be honest yeah 
Yeah. So it's also Black Botanists Week um, uh, this this week. Uh, we're linking to the hashtag search on Twitter, Black Botanists Week 2021. Go and check that out to learn more. It's really cool. I found very cool stories there. And um, I will be reading this this entire week and, and the days after. Uh, there's re it's really, really inspiring. So go and check that out. And yeah, there's also a website, blackbotanistweek.weebly.com. And there's even a music playlist on Spotify. Oh, Yeah. And I think this podcast comes out on Friday, um, which means there's still like Friday and Saturday stuff, but also, you know, everything that's been happening through the week is sort of compiled at the stage. So go have a little look and a read. Yeah. And I have another very short thing that I just want to mention here. There has been in the New York Times a really cool article called Learning to Love GMOs. Um, that's really, it's like a very long read, but a very interesting read. Um, talking about like all different aspects around genetically modified organisms in the United States for, for human consumption. Uh, what I found very interesting is that they're sort of following as the meta story that's holding everything together, the story of a very small research group of just like one or two people who made a, to a purple tomato that's really rich in antioxidants, but um, they can't really put it to market because of regulations. And that's in the United States where it's much easier than, than in Europe. Um, But they they show like how technically you could have a much like many more people involved in the market of of making breeding new crops, but of, because of regulation, this becomes more difficult. But it also talks about uh, a lot about uh, many other aspects of of the entire um, uh, entire topic. So probably for people who care about this already, um, not a lot new to learn, but very well put together. It's, I think it's a good resource to share. And speaking of sharing, um, I'm like, I tried out this trial period of the New York times, um, um, paywall thing that they're doing. And now I like, I could create a link where you can read the full text without paying for it. Um, so if you want to read the full story, you click in the link in the show notes, because that's like, they have a, way of creating these links and i hope it works and i hope that more people can read this really cool article and continue to to, to share it um so yeah just go and check if, that out as well yeah if nothing else just click on through to look at that purple tomato it's beautiful yeah it really is um speaking of gmos final thing i mentioned today there's a publication that came out in nature biotech again this week it's by you and colleagues rye rna demethylation increases the yield and biomass of rice and potato plants in field trials. So um, they have looked at putting the expression of an RNA demethylase. So basically it's the fact that RNA gets sort of little modifications um, on, on the RNA and you can put them on and take them off again, take these like bedazzled bejewel um, marks on and off and that will change um, how the RNA sort of functions. So they've put in an enzyme that removes these little methyl groups, these bedazzling marks, um, and they found that by adding it, they could increase grain yield in uh, rice. It increased threefold under greenhouse conditions, which is huge, three times more, more yield. And then in the field, um, it also caused about a 50% increase, so less but still like quite a significant increase in both the yield and the biomass of rice and also of potatoes. So two pretty big crops mm -hmm. there. Um, so they sort of also looked at how this is working. It's um, basically preventing... So there's signals that tell the plant to not grow too big. Obviously, like if you get too big, you, you put yourself at risk and it's basically turning off those limits from what I understand. So it's like 
just deregulating the plant's own desire to not become a monster, and then the plant becomes a, mo- a monster. Seems to be what's happening. Um, oh, very interesting. Yeah, one thing that I should mention, um, which might be a concern and links to Yaram's previous article about GMOs. This is a GMO, but not only that, it's using the RNA demethylase from humans and putting that into a a crop plant. And I can imagine that will raise some some very hairy eyebrows um, mm-hmm. as far as GM fears. I'm not saying that there's something to be feared, but I'm just saying that's not something we see every day. Usually it's taken from a different plant species or from a bacteria or even a fungi. Taking it dry straight from a human is yep. it's a little bit weird. It, it definitely, it feels weird. And I remember just from like our like transgenic documentation that we had to do just for lab work, whenever you had something coming from a human, you'd get like a, an extra stack of papers to fill in. Like <laughs> yeah. I had just like a short <laughs> peptide tag that came like, and it's like very widely used, but it came from like human influenza virus. And it's just like a very short tag. It's like, it's not functional in any way that it could make you sick, but it comes from this virus. And so because it comes from a pr- potentially harmful virus in humans and i want to use okay, it so it's not my... coming from humans it's coming from something that can infect humans yeah. i can understand why that's that's scarier though that's something that can infect humans that's not yeah. just like and but you, then yeah. you just have to get like you get the extra paperwork and then in the end it's like it's all fine it's like it's all all safe but um whenever you you go into sort of the the special organisms stuff that can infect humans or humans themselves i imagine it, it's a little bit harder um in, in the regulation yeah. yeah i mean just to just to mention to find a 50 percent increase in yield that's really huge like normally yeah. people are spending years and years and doing research and getting like a couple of percent bump you know like six percent would be amazing and this is 50 percent. so this is this is truly mm-hmm. a huge number um i'm interested to see how this goes through and just again like methylation of the rna this is like epitranscriptomics so like epigenetics but like modifications of the rna is also not something i know very much about so it's one of those papers where i'm like oh i there's a a gap in my knowledge i've got to go (laughs) and have a little read of what what's going on there um yeah it's like a a which is the joy of science a door to a completely new new world open there like um Mm -hmm. very interesting I think that's what I have for today. I have like two things cat related. Do you have something about cats? Nah. I have something very charming and short. It's um, Twisted Doodles. Uh, she's a cartoonist on, on Twitter. She made a little template that you can fill out um, to map your neighborhood cats. And I found it super cute. It's just like a little template with like six blank cats and a line underneath. And then you can fill in the cats that you see and give them names. Or if you know their names, you can put it underneath. And then you have like a little chart of the cats that you come by. Um and yeah, I just found that delightful and made one myself already. Tegan, have you ever seen a cockatoo? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, Yaron. What are you laughing at? Uh, uh, have you ever cool. seen right, the, the bird, the cockatoo, open a mm-hmm. trash can in, in a suburb in Australia when you were still there? No, but we have something that we call actually um, trash. What do we call them? Trash chickens, bin chickens. <laughs> so it's like those, it's sacred ibises. Do you know what a sacred ibis is? Much bigger bird. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, they're they're just vermin in Australia and they're running around eating the trash. And they, they also have like that kind of vulture-like neck that's a bit more naked. So they just look really scabby and really filthy. Um, that's a bin chicken, but that is different from a cockatoo. 
So as it turns out, um, there is bird culture. Um, cockatoos are able to um, not only open trash bins, but also learn from one another. And the interesting bit is that sort of the skill of opening trash bins w was actively observed how it uh, made its way from suburb to suburb. There was like a big project over two years, oh, wow. like a citizen science project, where they asked people uh, whether or not they've seen cockatoos nearby do like open trash cans and they could map that on the suburbs. And then they could see how it would spread from like where it was first described and then the, the neighboring suburbs. And they could also see that sometimes it would pop up like in distant suburbs. Uh, and then when they looked at how the cockatoos were doing it in these suburbs, they had different techniques. Like sometimes they would like use their feet and their bill together. Sometimes only the bill, sometimes only the feet. Sometimes they like would like... convergent evolution. Yeah. And exactly. It's exactly that, that we could, can observe like how convergent evolution sort of happens. But here it's like learning. Um, and so the researchers compare that to sort of a subculture of birds that like some birds just have a, a way of doing certain things. And especially like when they have the same skill of opening the bin, but they do it just in a slightly different way because they learned it in a different way where the end effect is the same, but um, the way they get there is different between them. And I just found that very charming. Um so yeah so in sorry there was like also a thing of like bin design like like human versus birds so this was more for the big black <laughs> crows that we have the ravens um and it was like yeah people were designing bins to make them tamper proof that you can still easily put the rubbish in there but like a crow can't like because they just knock them over and like throw <laughs> everywhere that's their their aim so there's like a, a big man versus bird thing going on in australia <laughs> I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast that like you don't want to be scared of the snakes and the spiders. You want to be scared of the birds in yeah. Australia. Yeah, I think you mentioned it once or twice before. <laughs> I, I, I Actually, heard... my, my, my fear of crows and, and magpies is very natural for somebody who's grown up in Australia. It's a, <laughs> I, a normal I, fear of my natural predator. I heard a tale that in, in Canada, there's a problem with bears and bins, especially on hiking trails. And the problem is that there's a significant overlap between the smartest bears and the dumbest tourists going on these hiking trails where you can't make the bins too complicated because then the humans can't open them anymore but if they're <laughs> simple enough that all humans manage then some bears also manage um so as in yeah. that's that's probably similar with the crows and, and the aussies to be honest yeah there's definitely there's definitely this this effect um yeah so yeah in it's it's also one of those things of um, like local knowledge that you learn based on where you grew up. Like I was talking to a colleague who's from the US and he was saying, you know, we saw like a brown bear, but it's not a grizzly, so it's fine. It's just like, like that thing that you know if you grew up in that thing, that like situation was like, okay, grizzlies yeah. are the mean ones that like to <laughs> hug you to death. Um. <laughs> That's the end of the show. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us off, you can reach us on social media. That's Why are we being told off? What do we do? For, for everything, Tegan. Ah, okay. Immaturity, cool. gross neglig negligence. I, I always assume you cut out the immaturity. So I don't usually listen back to the full podcast. And I just assume that you cut out the bad bits. I'm always so terribly afraid that one day I'll either miss, miss them or do like an inverse edit where it's just the bad bits. Um <laughs> So one day, like yeah. that's like the last episode that we'll hear from us will be because I'm when I we cancel up. ourselves. <laughs> so cool. on Twitter, um, you can cancel me on Twitter. That's at plants for pets. On Instagram and Facebook, it's at plants and for pets. 
And we also have a website, www.plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish blog posts. And this time, we actually really did it. I made Yoram spend hours and hours drawing a Romanesco cabbage. It was really tricky, and I was like, just and sit and terrible. do it until you're done. I, it I looks was, brilliant. What are you talking about? I was too lazy to do it again, but I'm really not happy with the result. But it took me forever. <laughs> okay, so go to our Instagram or our Facebook or our blog and tell Yoram how you think he should do it again until it's better um, or tell him it's nice if you feel a little bit more like, you know, the carrot versus the stick for improvement. Um, but yeah, it's this story that came out in Science a few weeks ago. You might have already seen it doing the popular science circuits, which is that scientists have finally figured out which genes need to be disrupted in order to prevent a normal cabbage-like thing from ultimately developing a nice normal flower and instead going into this weird mutated flower that is called a cauliflower. So they've worked out basically what the genes are that are involved to make a cauliflower. Yeah. It's good because once you've got a cauliflower, you can make everything else, right? Like yeah. chicken wings, it's rice. Like, I made cauliflower sushi the other day. It's a Sorry, everyone. Basic building block of life, cauliflower. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically that is it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our opening closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. I think that's it. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>